Hello and uh, welcome to the 30-Minute Simo Podcast. My name is Gorsha Huchua and I'm joined by my friend and partner, Alex McNamara. Alex, top of the evening to you. Hello. Bottom of the evening, whatever it is. Top of the late afternoon. I think it's well, bottom of the late afternoon. I guess. Technically, yeah, it's it's the bridge. Technically, the bridge. It's good. It's good to see you again. It's uh, we've been uh, we've been on a roll with uh, with quite a few um, recordings as of late. Uh, but I'm really excited mm-hmm. about the one that we have going on today and uh, what we have in store for our for our audience. Yes, this is going to be a really good one. I'm very looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. Should we, should we dig right in? Let's uh, let's dig right in, and I I, I want to introduce um, our guest um, for today. Um, the, the the topic today is going to be very timely and quite meaty, um, and uh, we have Ray Wirt uh, joining us. Uh, Ray, welcome to the show. You were most recently head of corporate communications at Cruise, um, GM's um, autonomous driving company. Previously at GM uh, in advanced technology. Glocker, you've run political com- campaigns. We're really excited to have you come on the show and bring this massive knowledge and um, expertise in comms and um, in PR when it comes to brands um, to this conversation. So welcome to the show. Really, really happy to be here today. Give us uh, just a little bit of your, um, if you don't mind, just a little bit of your story, how, how you ended up getting into this line of work and um, how how you've been sort of helping brands um, kind of in a nutshell shape their um, their story and their identity a little bit. Sure. Well, I frankly, it all started when I was uh, um, uh, decided to go to work for a guy named Nick Denton, who was the owner of a company called Gawker Media. Uh, he hired me in to work on his, his car website, and uh, I eventually started to run it. And um, uh, we built it from a website where if we were getting... 10,000 page views in a day at the beginning, we were going out to the bar to celebrate to if we weren't getting uh, a couple million unique visitors per day, we thought the servers were broken. Okay. Uh, and we did it <laughs> off of the, the basis of, of, of storytelling. Like what we realized is, is that what people didn't care about was the stuff that the automakers cared about, meaning torque, horsepower, no one cared. What they cared is, is like what the car meant to them, what, it, what emotions it, it created in them and what it enabled them to do. And so what we focused on were the stories of the people, not the cars, and, um, and kind of said, yeah, I understand the PR people want us to make the cars the stars, but it's the people that own them, that drive them, that, that use them are the ones that, that are actually meaningful. Um, and then uh, during my seven and a half or so years there, I then got bumped up to being what was in essence sort of a, a publisher type of a role and being uh, running uh, content, uh, uh, custom content for, uh, the company, um, and uh, realized that like uh, I hated the media world. Um, that it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't fun to me because it felt like we, although we had freedom to be able to say what we wanted, we didn't have the budgets or the capability to do the type of big storytelling that was actually going to be able to be impactful and was going to be able to move the needle and get companies to do the right thing. And uh, I had slowly become uh, or slowly realized, especially as someone who was born in Metro Detroit, um, that that this auto industry that had had, um, you know, enriched where I had grown up um, had all of these unintended consequences to them. You, you had, you know, massive amounts of pollution. You had uh, crashes that killed and injured people. You had um, congestion on, on the roads. And I was starting to come to uh, a sense of what could solve those problems. And initially, I thought that the biggest, most transformative piece was going to be the move from gasoline to electrification. And I thought that was going to be the most impactful from a reputation standpoint, as well as also from a standpoint of like making the world, frankly, better writ large, um, just given how much CO2 is emitted by the transportation industry in general. so I, I realized that Tesla alone wasn't going to be able to move the needle. Um, and what you needed was you needed a major automaker to follow them. And then I figured the rest of the automakers would follow like lemmings. So I pushed on uh, a few different companies, Nissan, uh, Mercedes, et cetera, and I wasn't getting a lot of traction. But where I saw an opportunity was at General Motors because they're a company that like, if they go all in on something, they truly can be transformative. But they've got to be like, all in on it. And so my push at, at when I was at General Motors was to push them to believe in an all electric future. 
and um, and I help them create their mission and vision, a world of zero crashes, um, zero uh, um, emissions, and zero congestion, uh, and and got them to to say that not only do they believe in an all-electric future, but that they were going to lead the way to get there. And sure enough, the rest of the auto industry followed like lemmings. And um, uh, and then saw the transformative, once once then, you know, a guy named Dan Ammon, who had been the CEO over at Cruise, uh, had uh, um, uh, suggested to me that electrification was a great platform, but what could really then transform things for people was going to be self-driving vehicles. And uh, I was in complete agreement on that. And so he asked me to kind of step in and do something similar with, with Cruise. And so there I was and found a merry band of amazing misfits uh, to work with, um, uh, like Alex here, but, uh, but also some just really talented communications professionals that I had the opportunity to work with and work for. That's awesome. Um, thank, thank, thanks for sharing this. And it's going to be really relevant for today's conversation. I think I should just introduce it before we get into our flow. We are going to be talking about the crisis uh, in Ukraine and the sanctions and brand boycotts in, in Russia, brands that have spent decades building that narrative about who they are to a consumer base um, that was previously not exposed to um, to these types of offerings. And so your expertise and your experience is going to be very relevant in helping to unpack uh, what's going on there. But before we get into this, I know that we have our usual uh, little um, reflection on the week that was. So Alex, kick us off. Yeah, uh, as we have thought about uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes, a little uh, a little amuse bouche. Um, the one that I haven't had a thought I have an ad, no, not a thought I haven't had about an ad I have thought about um, the new Airbnb made possible by hosts. Um, they came out maybe about a month ago, um, but it's a series of ads which um, really focuses on the experiences and the. Uh, memories that you make while traveling that is made possible through the hosts that give you those places to make those memories. And they, I thought the creative was really great. It combined really nice storytelling, but through pictures and photos of real people on holiday through soundtracks that matched it. So there was like a baby's first trip to uh, to Naples and the song was about you know, Napoli. And there was a one of two young siblings on a farm somewhere and it was John Denver's uh, one of John Denver's songs. There was just a, a, another one, a, a couple had been married for 57 years and it was their holiday. Um, and it was just like a really beautiful, you know, sound um, uh, video through through stills. Um, and it, it really made you want to travel and it captured the essence of traveling and what makes holidays great. It's the places that you go with the people you're with and the celebration of that. I just really, I just really loved it. It was a really great um, series of ads. That's awesome. And uh, kudos to Airbnb for also um, taking a very active stance in um, in the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in Europe and supplying 100,000 um, rooms. Uh, they're working actively with hosts. I think they're uh, doing a phenomenal job there. And um, really, as, as much as they're um, marketing their core product, they're also uh, leveraging the assets they have to, uh, to be of great help um, in a time of need. So good. Thumbs up. Thumbs up here, BNB. Ray, what about you? Any any ads that um, came across your screen that or screens that uh, stuck with you? The ad that I cannot get enough of, I've watched it now ten times today, is the uh, new trailer for Obi Wan Kenobi, <laughs> the TV show on on Disney Plus. Yes. I'm sorry, I'm just I'm geeking out over it. I really appreciated that they did the. The little Vader um, uh, uh, breathing at the end uh, yeah. it just it was just like really really well done. I'm I'm kind of a trailer fanboy. Like I really I think there's there's a massive art to doing it in the right way, and they especially like uh, the the uh, Star Wars trailers recently have done a really really good job of building anticipation versus like trying to just throw it all into the first one. Um, and so you know I think it was just really really well done but i'm just a big nerd so oh i great. saw it today as well it's it's really good it's really good they nail the storytelling without telling you the story without telling you any story whatsoever it's just it's Which really is good what usually trailers fail at or a lot of times they sort of they yeah. make so many of them <laughs> but by the time you go see the movie you feel like you've seen half of it through the trailers so that that is there yeah. is an art to this for sure 
Um, I'll finish off. I, um, I don't have anything really cool to share, but I did um, see the new Tiffany's ads uh, sort of start creeping up across my screens. And um, I don't know, it just kind of, they, 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 feel a little, uh, they feel a little disjointed and mistimed. Um, they are very star-studded. Uh, there was, there's an ad with Jay-Z and Beyonce. Um, there is the, another version with Anya Taylor-Joy. She's the actress in Queen's Gambit, the Netflix show. Um, I know I know that um, Tiffany's is um, kind of revamping their image and they're trying to move up market as a, since they've been bought by LVMH, but it just kind of feels forced. And um, in the times that we're sort of living in the last couple of weeks, it they, they feel massively out of place. Um, and uh, <laughs> so I'm not sure. I mean, it's beautifully done, but I'm not sure that it's achieving uh, what what they were hoping to achieve. Um, and, and timing with advertising is always a factor. I think I think that's a really good that's a really good point. I think one that uh, we talked about in our last episode that Ray I want to bring bring to you as well. Um, talking about advertising at the wrong time, um, the Applebee CNN placement. Um, you know, I managed to catch it live on that Sunday morning, and I was like, "Wow, they really did not do that right." Um, but you know, from a corporate comms uh, mind, when you saw or heard heard about this. What was your reaction? What like went through your mind as you saw you saw this unfolding? Where did, where did your corporate comms head go? Well, I did not catch it live. I was holding my I was with my uh, my my little one on Sunday morning, um, but uh, I caught it about fifteen to twenty minutes later when it first popped up onto Twitter. When I saw a video of it, and I was like, "Oh my fucking god, the, <laughs> that is the worst alignment I have ever seen." If I'm Applebee's, I'm going to murder CNN. And sure enough, that's exactly what, what came down the pipe. I mean, and I think Applebee's did exactly what they needed to do there, which is like, CNN screwed this up. This was like, this should have never happened. Um, this was terrible. Um, and, uh, and CNN should have been apologizing. I mean, it was, just, it was just really, really weak and really poor decision-making on the part of whoever was trafficking ads at the time. Yeah. It, it definitely felt, I mean, it, it, I thought it was a programmatic buy where there was, you know, but it wasn't just me who saw it. And so therefore it was an actual, someone decided to put it and run it in that spot. And that was a pretty bad decision. Well, but it's also one of those things where like, even at Gawker, when we had stories, which we knew were going to be problems, like when, like the Manti Teo story was running where, you know, it was like a, the story of like him having an imaginary girlfriend and who died, but was she wasn't real anyways, so it didn't matter. Um, but it was like uh, it was a story that like we knew no ad wanted to be aligned with that at all. Like we had specific tags that we would put in, which were like basically like hashtag no tag uh, or no <laughs> ad, and it would be like it would it would serve up like our in-house ads, and that's it. And like if if you're CNN like you've got to make sure that you've got the right editorial processes in place that allow for editorial to be able to you know hold the button on some of these things and to realize that like there's a right time and a wrong time for an ad that was a wrong time yeah very much the wrong no matter how catchy the jingle is (laughs) (laughs) and the tiktok dances that they did themselves yeah well i think this uh this 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 gets us into the um into the core of the conversation, which is um, the situation that uh, that has unfolded over the last two weeks in in Ukraine, um, the the attack by Russia of, of a so- sovereign country obviously is causing a huge humanitarian crisis, um, and uh, this is definitely much much more important than what we're going to be discussing. But this is, after all, a marketing podcast, and there and there is a marketing. Um, element to this, and that's that's what we're good at. That's what we're going to get into. Um, and before we start getting into sort of the topics themselves, I thought it would be important, or at least relevant, to um, share a few stats because I think that uh, with these stats, we're going to have um, some reference points as to the size and the scope of the impact of what's of 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 what we're discussing. Um, so to start, um, the Russian economy is. Um, just under two trillion dollars in GDP, and it's uh, it ranks eleventh uh, in the world by some measures, on par with Australia. So definitely big, not humongous, not China, not the U.S., but but up there, and especially in the European context. 
Um, but despite being a country of about 140 million people, a huge country, the largest in the world in terms of territory, only about 14% of Russians are considered to be middle class. So it's a fairly small percent relative to what we're used to in Western economies. Um, but it's still about 20 million people. So to compare, you know, it's probably the size of the Netherlands or to Belgium's, or if you took all the populations of New Zealand, Ireland, and Norway, and Finland combined, it's it's about the size of that. So significant enough, again, uh, where you know this is going to paint paint a little bit of a contest for us or a con context for us as we as we get into the discussions. Um, I also uh, looked at uh, the brand preferences that Russians have, um, what they consider to be the you know brands uh, that they have the most affinities for. And the most recent information on Statista shows that Samsung, Adidas, Nike, Apple, Coca-Cola, and H&M, they're the ones that are in the top 10. They're, they're the chart toppers. It's not the domestic brands. It's really, truly the global multinational brands uh, that... Wait, are you telling me honestly that Russians love Adidas tracksuits? Imagine. <laughs> imagine. Who'd have thought? As <laughs> the official uniform of Eastern Europe, come on. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, also, uh, you know, there's uh, there's been obviously news about McDonald's and Coke making decisions about Russia. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, Russia accounts for about 9% of McDonald's global revenues, or roughly two, uh, $2 billion a year. Um, and it's also important to know that many of these brands have been operating in Russia for several decades as a reminder. Um, there wasn't really a lot of Western um, uh, presence prior to 1991 when uh, Soviet Union collapsed and Russia became a free and independent uh, country, which is when we saw a lot of these brands entering uh, Russia. But, you know, fun fact, Pepsi has actually been in Russia since the 1970s. Um, McDonald's opened its first store in 1989 and 1990. I can't remember, but it was still very much the Soviet Union. And even if you look at the photos from uh, from the opening mm -hmm. day, it'll be the golden arches with a Soviet flag underneath, which was an incredible contrast of the two systems sort of colliding in this one place with huge, huge lines of people trying to enter. So this paints a little bit of a picture of, of what we're talking about. And uh, I think this kind of gets us into in, into the first set of questions. The economic boycott, uh, we've seen Coca-Cola, Starbucks, McDonald's, they have announced that they're also spending operations in Russia. Um, we've, you know, Ray, we've heard that these are unprecedented, unprecedented sanctions and that the flight of brands is just something that we've never seen before. Is there any parallel to your knowledge from recent history that we can reference when we discuss what's going on? Or are CEOs and CMOs having to invent these things on the fly as they're evaluating the situation on the ground? I think that that the the Russia has become such has become an unprecedented pariah uh, at a level that I don't think we've ever seen. I mean, because we're not just talking about like what's really interesting is is, is that like the brands that are consumer facing are actually the ones who were um, uh, the ones who were who were frankly were not the first to decide to exit. It was the brands that had billions and billions of dollars in stakes in like, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, what was it, uh, BP doing, uh, like cutting off their $14 billion yeah. stake in, uh, in Rosneft, uh, you had Shell, um, with that, that, that leaving its, uh, joint venture with, uh, with Gazprom. I mean, these are, these are multi-billion dollar, uh, um, yeah. you know, deals that they were just, just, exiting and wiping their hands of and walking away uh, that's that's amazingly unprecedented and i think those companies actually took you know delta doing um uh you know shutting off service um or cutting cutting service uh to their their um uh flight partners uh under sky team saying no we're not going to to run any not only our um planes but we're not going to connect to any planes that are going to Russia or going um, going through Russia, uh, some of these larger companies came out real, real fast, um, and they they're looking like they were the prescient ones. Um, and you know, I think it was um, James O'Rourke, who's a, um, a professor at uh, Notre Dame's uh, uh, at the Mendoza College of Business. There, um, you know, he 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 has always been a believer that that like doing business in Russia is already tough enough. Um, and I think he was like, it's be, I, like his quote was something like, now it's become crazy. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's getting out is, is actually the smart business proposal right now. 
And I think we're seeing that across. The Do you board. think um, as you know, the Biden administration was signaling four weeks in advance uh, Russia's intention to attack that CEOs and the C-suite executives were sitting in their boardrooms looking at that publicly available intel and drafting plans for what their response will be should these things happen? Or are, are a lot of brands playing catch up, do you think? I think the the reason why some of those oil companies were the, some of the first to come out was because they, they they've been kind of shellacked pretty recently, um, uh, whether it's through uh, um, you know com- uh, like entities like Engine Number One that are are doing uh, ESG investing and like trying to take over board seats, like they've been they've been under artillery fire, um, you know probably a bad analogy, but like they they've been under fire. Um, and so I think they were probably thinking ahead about what kind of an impact this might have. Um, and I think any company that is doing enough business in Russia, I would hope would have been thinking ahead on this. Um, but I, I, I do think that for some of the smaller, I'm like McDonald's, sure, like they're doing a couple billion dollars in revenue, but that's not like, it's not, it's not double digits numbers for them. Um, and consequently, like, I don't think they were necessarily looking at it through that lens, um, initially, but I think once those, the first tranche of companies, um, uh, made these decisions, they were probably pretty quick to jump in. You, when you, when you said it, it was difficult to, to do business in Russia. Now it's become crazy. Do you, is one of the reasons that staying there and trying to do business would have just been impossible. And, you know, even if you were able to not have the public blowback of still dealing with, with, Russian corporations just trying to get business done would have cost more money than just removing yourself from the situation and potentially losing millions. I mean, I think that that the there um, when you start getting the cacophony of noise from media, from customers, from employees, um, and uh, and and outside interest groups it becomes impossible. Like it's, there's, there's no reasonable way that they can justify it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I think that there's, you know, would have been smarter for some companies to be thinking more proactively about how they, they, uh, make those decisions. But I think at a certain point you, you've just got to like cut and run and realize that like, there's, there's no sense in, in being there if it's hard enough to do business because right now, like you can't even run credit cards. Like, yeah. so let's say you get, you let's say you sell a burger in rubles like what do you do with that money you can't transfer it to anything what transfer it to bitcoin like i mean there's no no way for them to be able to actually turn that into revenues and profits so it's it's too hard to do business it's actually in many cases for these companies and probably this is true for mcdonald's is uh it was it's it's frankly just easier for them to just shut down for the moment yeah. And then unfortunately, the people when they shut down, the people who are working at McDonald's get impacted. And then it becomes more than just the companies trying to protect themselves. It's more impacting just the day to day people who are just trying to make it through the day, trying to you know buy food, pay the rent. So it's, it's uh, becoming more and more serious for for them as well. Um, well, and it's and it's it's also, I think, a bigger I think part of this push and part of the reason that there's been such a push on the part of the Biden administration towards um, championing championing those companies that have that are, are doing the right thing and shutting down their operations there or, or stopping to do work there um, is is using it as ex- further examples of saying, you know, not only are we isolating this this country that's become a pariah, but like we're hoping that the the public starts to realize that, like, this is bigger than just a you know, what, what, whatever Putin's calling it, a, uh, a peacekeeping action, that this is a, 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 you know, a senseless war that was declared against a neighboring country for seemingly no reason. Yeah. Um, just uh, talking, talking about the brands, um, we've seen that the Western brands leaving Russia is exceeding restrictions um, placed by all the sanctions. I think the uh, Yale School of Management maintains an up-to-date list of companies that have left um, or suspended business in Russia, and there's about 300-plus brands. Um, we kind of touched on this, but why are the brands that aren't affected by sanctions making the decision to leave? And this is, you know, less. we talked about the oil, uh, and it's very, very easy to see. We still talked about McDonald's, um, but, you know, even 
H&M's, Adidas, Nike, uh, Coke, Pepsi, only the soda though, all the other Pepsi brands are still there. But why are, you know, why are the brands that aren't affected directly now making the decision to leave? Well, I think some of them are being direct, like directly affected because I think like it's one thing if they're trying to, you know, there's sort of like um, there's sort of a time delay on some of these things. Like you're probably there's a recognition that, OK, um, Pepsi might have been like, all right, we can we can, you know, we're OK right now. We don't have to ship anything to 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 rush at the moment. They can sell down stocks that have already been, you know, that have been sent to uh, to stores to, you know, to to. Uh, um, uh, to restaurants, et cetera. But at a certain point there becomes a re- recognition that like, Oh, we, we can't really ship anything to them right now. Like there's no easy way for us to be able to get goods to them. Um, like it really is, it becomes a supply chain issue as much as anything else. Like if you can't send a plane from here to there, yep. it, it sort of doesn't matter whether or not you want to do business there. You sort of can't. And then um, the same same but, way with if you can't charge people the rubles and you can't move the rubles out, then it becomes very difficult to run a business. So it's it's jump in and do it. You know, if you're going to have to shut it down, at least give a reason for it. It's um, it's interesting uh, to think about um, the decisions these brands are having to make in real time. And I, I'd love to, Ray, for you to kind of walk us a little bit through what might be going on using an example, actually, that I came across today. So uh, I'll bring this example up. It's um, it's Hilton Hotels. Uh, they have a presence in Russia, um, several hotels, uh, I think I think about two dozen uh, across the country. Um, they're they're mainly um, operated through a franchise agreement where Hilton Hilton's brand uh, is uh, is licensed by a lo- local operator, which is a fairly common thing for uh, companies to do. Uh, from what I've read, Hilton is actually having a fairly hard time unwinding any sort of relationships or businesses um, that are in Russia. And so they released this statement, and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on uh, on what you think of it. Um, it starts off by saying that Hilton joins those around the world in shock and disbelief and kind of goes into, into a few sentences on that. And then they are saying the following things. They are saying, in addition to the steps we've already taken to protect our team members and guests, we're doing the following things. We're donating up to $1 million uh, room nights to support Ukrainian refugees and humanitarian relief. We have closed our corporate offices in Moscow and will ensure continued work and pay for impacted team members. We are suspending all new development activity in Russia and all profits generated in that market will be donated to huma- humanitarian relief uh, in uh, in Ukraine. And then they're also contributing $50,000 to World Central Kitchen and Project Hope to further assist with humanitarian aid. It feels like they're squeezing out things uh, in this statement to show that they're taking action without actually doing what most of the brands around them are doing, which is closing shop. How? Right. Explain to me a little bit of like what what this tells you, this statement, how it was thought about. It feels like they're they're hedging and de-risking. Uh, I think I think what it tells me is that they um, they, as you noted, they have a, a licensing agreement. So they don't directly control then the the you know the hotels that are there, and the only thing they can control is the money that comes in due to that licensing agreement. And therefore, what that I think the most important piece that was there was is that they're going to donate any profits that they're receiving from like operations that are going to be occurring because if they're getting money for that, then they want that money to go to you know not to their uh, profit margins, but to go to uh, uh, you know, to get donated to to do some kind of good, but legally they might not have an ability to be able to unwind quickly those type of agreements. And one of the things that I would hope it would this this situation would do is is ensure that um, brands are doing a, a much better job of ensuring that there are sort of force majeure type of uh, um, uh, line items in their contracts that give them the ability to be able to. Um, uh, to be able to cut and run in cases where there is, you know, where a, a, a country is doing something that is, uh, could potentially negatively impact their brand reputation. And I think that's one of the areas where I think legal, certain um, uh, legal teams at brands do a really good job of this and certain legal teams at brands don't, um, where they, they are thinking and partnering with their, 
their PR teams to say, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? And should we be thinking about that when we're engaging in this contract? Um, so that, that's, that's my first, um, uh, first thought on that. My second thought is, wow, that is an everything in the kitchen sink type of an mm-hmm. approach to, uh, to, to dealing with this. Uh, I probably would have simplified it. And I also probably would have been more transparent and honest and said, this is an agreement like that we don't have an ability to be able to back out of, but we're not going to make a single dime off of this. Any money that comes in is going to get donated. And at our first possible convenience, we're going to cancel this relationship. Like, that's probably how I would have dealt with it. My, my impression is that um, there, well, my impression is that there are companies um, like McDonald's who are also operating franchise agreements. Um, I've read today that Yum! Brands is having a tougher time at it than McDonald's, which owns the majority of its stores in, uh, in Russia, but does have franchises, that they're choosing to go further, but have a three-month kind of buffer to see how things shake out. Uh, so they're funding this out of uh, some sort of a crisis budget where they're maintaining salaries but closing all the stores and is probably probably paying their franchisees some sort of a fee. Whereas brands like Hilton are maybe not in a position to do that or have not thought of doing this or have decided against doing this for a variety of reasons. Um, so there might be um, less of an appetite to um, take more drastic actions uh, and, and pay a financial penalty. And also, I have to say, Airbnb has done a really, really good job of, of communicating what they're doing yeah. to help uh, Ukrainian refugees. I mean, they're like, n- n- like what they've been doing, where um, and and what 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 uh, people in in like the UK were doing, where they were uh, 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 purchasing nights in Ukraine uh, that they had no plans to actually utilize. I mean, just really, really smart ways of being able to help the Ukrainian people out and. Uh, uh, so I think Hilton was also in a place where, like, they needed to figure out a way to be able to stop Airbnb from eating their lunch on a PR side. You're probably there, right? Yep. Um, I think I think uh, the uh, we we may have touched this um, before, but do you think there was a tipping point when it went from risky to boycott to risky to remain? Um, because it seemed like more and more brands, regardless of impact, were just making the decision and putting out statements uh, to, to say that they were closing up shop, essentially. I, I really think it was the, the big oil making their moves. I really, because it was just such a, like, it was such a holy shit. Mm. Like, BP is pulling out of this $14 billion stake. Like, mm. that's, what are we going to do, guys? Like, that's... That's got that. That must have been the conversations that were going on in some of these brand, uh, um, uh, you know, C suites where um, they they may have not initially been uh, as as focused on it. But I think when you start seeing those type of numbers, you start realizing, wow, if they're willing to step out of this, and we only have a twenty million dollar business, we really should probably be getting out of this. Um, plus, I, I got to tell you, the other thing is, is that like. Uh, President Zelensky is uh, like he has done a really, really good job of putting a face uh, and uh, on 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 this. And I give a lot of credit to a lot of really, really good PR agencies that have been putting some free um, uh, uh, PR help behind the Ukrainian uh, um, government. But like they've just he's done such an amazing job. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he, he has truly made uh, um uh, uh, Ukrainian Jewish men like myself feel like we have missed the mark on on what we could be doing as, you know, people. I'm sure I'm sure he would welcome that. your help uh, with some with some comms and positioning. Uh, uh, he's got a <laughs> at the moment. He's he's doing very well on his own. It's, uh, um, it's, what, it's in it, your from your sorry, Alex. I just wanted to kind of uh, add to this. It's yeah. uh, it's interesting what uh, Ray just uh, just said because I I saw and I can't verify if this is true or not, but I there's a there's a screenshot from the Ministry of uh, Ukrainian Foreign Affairs where they've published uh, a, a, a list of companies that have yet to leave Russia or you know are, are have not made an announcement to do so, with a pretty bold title that says every ruble paid in taxes to Russia turns into deaths and tears of Ukrainian children, and then top 50 global brands staying on the Russian market as of you know the 9th of March. Um, list seems a little outdated to me, but point is um, Ukraine is pretty adept at PR and seems to be, like you said, 
putting the pressure on um, on all sides to act. <coughs> Sorry, Alex, I, I, I mean, cut you off there. No, that's that's this is much more interesting than what I was going to say. I think, uh, but I think what they ha they in terms of the PR that they've been doing is just they know what they can and cannot request or ask from other countries, and I think they've done a really good job of figuring it out how to run their press conferences to maximize the airtime they've got without jeopardizing relationships and and creating further and escalating especially when it comes to you know like the us for example um and i think that's uh they, like you said they've had a lot of really good help there um to do that well and they, they're also they've just been really smart i mean they've been doing an amazing job of like they did they set up a, a call for like um for legislators in uh, in DC with Zelensky um, uh, over the weekend, and like that was just like that's not something that most um, you know most presidents of a of, of a European country would have been thinking. That's you know would have been the right move, but it was absolutely the right move because it forced like pressure to continue to be placed on Biden and the administration to be doing absolutely everything in their power mm -hmm. um, to be moving the needle. And, and not only that, but it created it and made it a bipartisan issue that was, uh, you know, that, that is such a rarity these days. So it's like, they're, they, from a, a PR and a public affairs standpoint, they've just done a masterful job. Yeah, it's interesting. President Zelensky is a, is a, is an actor. He's a star in Ukraine. Um, he was actually a star in Russia because his uh, primary, his first language was uh, was Russian. And the shows that um, he starred in, and um, you know, the multi multi um, series um, kind of episode series that he uh, where he sort of predicted or foreshadowed his uh, rise to uh, presidency was ve very well received in Russia back uh, back a few years ago when it came out. So he's definitely leveraging his communication talent, his star power, his ability to speak in multiple languages to multiple constituents, um, I think incredibly effectively. And he's, he's young and he knows how to use um, um, smartphones and social media very, very effectively. So he is definitely outplaying the very sort of central pl centrally planned Russian propaganda machine, which is struggling to make its case outside of its four, four walls. I mean, the Russian propaganda machine, did you see the, the story about the TikTok influencers all being given a script and someone has made these like, you know, montages of, of all of them saying the same thing. Uh, and it's like, you know, you've got to give them props for tapping into the TikTok generation to further their propaganda of this, you know, peacekeeping mission and denazification of a, of a different country and making their invasion seem like it's a good idea. So I thought, you know, that's quite uh quite an interesting congratulations tactic. congratulations <laughs> vladimir you've done a great job of leveraging TikTok. <laughs> yeah Mazel tov. so for all the brands that are leaving there are brands that are staying um and i want to discuss those decisions a little bit because um th these are significant brands uh, yum we talked about um for maybe logistical reasons but also i think they're probably seeing seeing a longer path to uh uh, surviving in Russia, Danone, uh, the French um, dairy conglomerate that we call Danon here, Uniqlo, the Japanese uh, fast fashion retailer, they're all staying in the country. Um, actually, there was an interesting conversation today on some of the travel forums where um, conversation tr turned to the Hiltons and Marriotts and, and Sheratons of the world. And uh, the point was made that these brands have operated in volatile environments for a very long time and in, 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 through wars and revolutions. And so is it the case that some of these brands are okay with what's going on? Are they seeing sort of a longer path uh, beyond the initial sort of maybe performative action that they're observing their peers take? Or is this because they are resi more resilient and have um, kind of more structural reasons for, for remaining? What, what's your thought on this, Ray? Well, so, you know, like Uniqlo is a great example because I remember the, the CEO came out and said, you know, that, that he believed clothes are a right for everyone, no matter whether you're Russian, Ukrainian, Japanese, whoever you might be. And so, I mean, I think some of these brands are are, are sticking to their mission and I, I'm, I'm not gonna argue against them. If like they think that they can validate that and they think internally they're able to, you know, to, to get their, their um, employees to buy into that message, um, that they think that, that it's not gonna hurt them in, the long run with their customers, 
I'm, I'm not going to argue against them. If it were a, uh, a company that was in, let's say, a, you know, uh, like raw steel for making tanks, I might have a bigger problem with it. But fast fashion, no one's going to be buying the clothes right now anyways because no one has any money and the money isn't valued in anything. So, sure, stay open for those people who need to come in and buy socks. But, like, for the most part, like, I, I think that the... Uh, and I'm sure that, that, that um, um, uh, Danone is probably thinking in a similar way or they get so much of their milk from cows in Russia that they've got to keep it open. I mean, there, there's got to be some justification behind it um, because i got to believe all of those companies are getting an inordinate amount of pressure placed on them by customers outside of the sphere of... Um, of Russian influence or outside of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, one th one thing that I th keep thinking about is that it's not just their f kind of the front of the store that's being affected. Um, some of these companies have huge infrastructural commitments um, on the back end. Uh, McDonald's sources all of its ingredients uh, in Russia and has manufacturing facilities there, as does as do many of the automakers um, for for a variety of reasons. IKEA too. Um, you know, famously left, um, but has a commitment to 35,000 employees and, um, you know, more than half of Russia uh, stocks, uh, stocks up in Ikea when they're moving into their new apartments and houses. And so um, the infrastructure problem is real, I think. It's, uh, it's, it's why I think these brands are, um, they say they're leaving. I think a lot of them are taking a pause before they make some, some more long-lasting decisions um, as they wait out the situation on the ground in Ukraine. I, th I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think Toyota specifically, they called it halting yeah. production. They didn't say that they were ending production. They didn't say they were shutting down the plant. They just said that they are halting production at the, uh, I think they have a plant in St. Petersburg that does uh, uh, like RAV4s and like, I guess Camrys, because those would be the same platform, like RAV4s and Camrys. Um, and, um, uh, but I know that uh, many automakers that were importing vehicles, they specifically like were like, we're going to stop shipping vehicles. And frankly, some companies uh, are probably going to use this as an excuse to not have to continue to set to ship vehicles because it, for many companies, it was cost prohibitive. It wasn't like a, it wasn't something that they were making a lot of money on. So this is actually a great opportunity to be able to close that part of their books. Uh, as I think GM did a few years ago, um, which was like, we're not going to do this anymore. And yeah, I think GM just announced that they were uh, funneling aid or uh, donating a chunk of money. I wouldn't say it's a big chunk compared to their overall revenue, but it's a chunk. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's good. Um, from your from a comms leader perspective, you're a, you're a head of communications for one of these brands. How far out are you? Are you is your comms spidey sense tingling? What are you thinking about? And what are you sort of whispering in people's ears and then saying much louder in in sort of the the meeting rooms and conversations you're having? Um, I'd love to get your your sort of like behind the scenes thinking on this. I would have been my spidey sense would have been going off um, at the beginning of the Olympics when I saw Putin and Z and, and G um, uh, uh, like hanging out together at the opening ceremony, because based on everything that we were seeing beforehand, um, like from uh, public intelligence that was available, something like that, there was a massing of troops going on. And it was very clear that the conversation that was happening was, uh, hey, we're not going to do this while your Olympics are on. Like, mm -hmm. we're not going to do this. Like, I'm here to, to like... To, to prove to you that like I'm your 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 BFF, I'm gonna have your back. I'm not going to allow uh, my troops to go into a war, um, you know, while while you are trying to have your moment in the spotlight. And um, that got it was actually as I was sitting there and I, I think I looked over at my wife and we were watching the opening ceremony and we saw the two of them there and I said he's gonna invade Ukraine like the day after the Olympics. Yeah. Um, so like. I would have been if I were a CCO at a uh, at any of these brands. I would have been thinking. I would the first email that I would have been sending would have been, "Can I get a full download on exactly what our relationship is with Russia uh, and with Ukraine, and um, can we get a conversation on 
you know, because uh, this would have been a Friday night on Monday um, to talk through how we're going to uh, how we're going to handle uh, a, a situation if it becomes outright war. Yeah, I, I, I feel that um, executives had the benefit of some ramp up uh, in this uh, in this scenario. This this war was probably one of the most telegraphed uh, events uh, in my memory and the element of surprise. While a lot of people didn't believe it was going to happen until it happened, um, there was a lot of information coming about when it was going to happen. Um, Ray, I, wouldn't, I, I, I would also say, though, that like this isn't the first time this has happened in the past 20, 20 some odd years. I mean, you look at at at, um, you know, post the the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Almost every war has been telegraphed, like it's just a question of whether or not people were paying attention. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is that for a CCO these days, you've got to have a clear, especially for a global multinational, yeah. like you've got to have a, your finger on the pulse of what's going on in any market that you're operating in. And you've got to have clarity on, and, and you can't ignore what, what you're seeing on the ground. Because even the Crimean invasion in 2014 was pretty well telegraphed. So it's... It's just you got to pay attention. That's right. Ray, um, as sort of the final question, let's look at the consumers who are stuck on the other side of this uh, situation. Um, the consumers in Russia, I'm also cognizant of the consumers in Ukraine, but I think the situation there is very much about survival at the moment. And it's probably inappropriate to talk about um, how they're going to think about brands in the near future. I think I think in as, as we think about the, the market in Russia, um, as those consumers are seeing brands that they've patronized um, fleeing, um, as we've discussed at the beginning, as the propaganda machine does its thing and people aren't maybe necessarily seeing the reasons that we are seeing for why these brands are leaving, how, if at all, do you think about managing in your relationships with those consumers into which you have invested decades and billions of dollars um, uh, into? I, that is a, a massively tough question to answer because it's going to be, it's all of it's going to depend on what the outcome of, of these sanctions are, are, are going to end up, uh, uh, you know, causing for Russia. Like if, if this ends up being something where we, let's say, uh, uh, let's say, uh, um, you know, this is a month, multi-month um, uh, war plus multi-year uh, Afghanistan type of a, a, a situation. For some brands, they might never return to Russia. Um, and so, like, all of that work and all of that money that was spent in terms of building up their brand uh, might be just lost. For some brands um, who decide to stay... I think there's going to be uh, consider continue to be considerable pressure put on them, um, uh, and especially if something happens to someone like Zelensky or like it's people. If he becomes a martyr, people are gonna like people are gonna hate brands that are still doing business in Russia, and um, and I'd be more concerned about losing in integrity with customers outside of mm -hmm. Russia than I would be about losing you know, uh, losing future customers in Russia because I'd have an existential threat today versus a potential threat to growth in the future. I think I think that's very poignant. Okay. And uh, uh, a question begs uh, to be uh, to be asked. Um, if you are in the C-suite of a multinational company right now, are you looking at this crisis and are you thinking about formulating some sort of a strategy for similar crises to come. We keep hearing about China and Taiwan and its ambitions um, there. China is a much more important market to the U.S. than Russia um, and to Europe. Um, and, and there are numerous other places that are flirting with autocratic, um, you know, regimes. And, uh, you know, Turkey's one. There's, you know, um, weird stuff happening in Brazil and Mexico. Um, are you are you revamping and, does, you know, your your plans for how to manage around these types of uh, geo, geopolitical um, you know, crises? 
I, I think so, but more importantly is just I'm thinking if I'm if I'm a global multinational, I'm looking at the rest of my industry and I'm starting to think about how can we as a group start taking the lead on 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 trying to move the needle towards stopping these type of situations before we get there. You know, you look at what Thomas Friedman said about that that, you know, his belief that that no uh, no country with McDonald's would go to war with uh, a country with a McDonald's. Obviously, that has, you know, that that literally has just been thrown out the window. Um, except maybe not because now McDonald's isn't in Russia. So I guess technically, there it's you know one country with McDonald's, Ukraine being attacked by a country that no longer has a McDonald's in Russia. But um, if you're a um, if you're a Samsung, if you're a if, frankly any company that is doing massive amounts of 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 uh, um, of uh, chip work in um, in Taiwan, you're probably thinking to yourself, what do we need to do to stop there from ever being uh, a war where we're going to lose our entire yeah. business over this? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and you've got to be thinking about like, what are the levers that you need to be pulling today to try to forestall that? And that would be the conversation I'd be trying to have in a C-suite of, of, of a brand that could be potentially impacted by that type of situation is what can we do today to stop that from ever happening? And it might be nothing, but I'd be, I'd be doing everything I could, or I'd be thinking about how do I de-risk? How do I make sure that I've got contract manufacturing that can pop up as needed? Um, that I can think like, you got to do a lot more, um, uh, a lot more, uh, uh, serious, serious work on, uh, crisis management. Makes uh makes COVID seem like a distant memory and all the all the things that we uh were talking about a mere two weeks ago supply chain logistics all of that right. <laughs> okay, well Ray, um, thank you for coming onto our show for sharing your um, insights. Uh, incredibly helpful to get into the minds of communication professionals advising these brands right now um, who are definitely dealing with some very tough decisions around some incredibly difficult circumstances and. Uh, I think for all of us, we just, I, I could say that we, uh, I hope that peace comes soon um, and that innocent people stop dying. Um, and uh, there, on, both, on, both on, 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 on all sides and that, and, yeah. and that uh, common sense prevails. Uh, but um, in the meantime, um, we'll do what we can to support those who are um, in acute need. Thank you again for, uh, for joining us. And Alex, until next time. Until next time, thank you.